Hello, good morning. Welcome again to Redeemer. My name is Matt Howell and I am one of the pastors here. Especially wanna welcome you if you um, find yourself confused about Christianity or if you are committed to Christianity or if you are curious about Christianity, wherever you find yourself this morning, we're thankful to have you with us online on the internet for church. Um, What is Redeemer? If you're new to Redeemer, what is this thing that you've stumbled into? Well, Redeemer's a church. And what that means is we're a community of people and we're trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And the way that we do that is we get together every week online and in the park and in different ways so that we might worship our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in his love for us. And we also get together throughout the week, individually and over small groups, so that we might together remind one another of his love for us. And as we rest in his love and remind one another of his love, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service, so that together we might reflect his love. Because we dream of seeing lives and relationships in our city flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus Christ. So that's who we are. We're a community of people and we're trying to learn how to love, how to love God and how to love our neighbor as we rest, remind, and reflect. Now, to help us do that this fall, what we're doing is we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon that Jesus preached that you can find in Matthew chapter five through seven, which is basically Jesus's description of what happens when a community of people submit to him and begin to relate to him as their king. And in order to set up the passage that was just read for you, uh, I want you to think about um, Jimmy Kimmel for a second. I love Jimmy Kimmel's, you know, he's got so many little prank videos on YouTube. And I stumbled across one recently where he did one back in 2013 where he sends a camera crew out to Coachella. You might know Coachella is this huge concert out in the desert. It's two weekends long, 60 bands, tons of music fans that go... Now, if you know anything about hardcore music fans, you know that they love to be in touch with what is the most obscure band that nobody has ever heard of. So Jimmy Kimmel sends his camera crew and, and they make up band names. They're just coming up with fake names of bands and they're interviewing people that are going to this you know, concert to see what happens. And so here's a couple of their interactions. The one, one reporter goes up to these two ladies and she says... Hey, one of my favorite bands this year is Dr. Shlomo and the GI Clinic. And the two women are like, yeah, they're so amazing. They're, they're always amazing. And then another, you know, the same reporter goes up to this different guy, another little segment. And she goes, are you guys excited as I am about the obesity epidemic? And the guy is like, yeah, I just love their whole style, their whole genre. They're very innovative and new. My favorite one is uh, this reporter goes up to, one of the, to this guy and he says, hey, she says, there are some smaller bands that are playing this year, uh, Two Door Cinema Club. And the guy goes, oh yeah, really looking forward to them. And the girl goes, do you like their new album, DJ Cornmeal? And the guy goes, yeah, you know, I actually had a radio show uh, on community radio, uh, on a community radio station up in Canada and I used to spin them all the time. And so it's just ridiculous. You're watching these videos. Uh, or you're watching this, you know, group of people that act like they know what they're talking about. And the, you know, this whole, the whole shtick is, of course, is that this video is just totally exposing them. They really don't have any clue what they're talking about. Now, 
I bring that up because I think Jesus is doing something similar here, although not, maybe not as sinister as the way that Jimmy Kimmel was doing it, but he's doing it in a, in a loving way, exposing us that in all actuality, we really don't know what we're talking about. We think we know what God is like. We think we know what it is like to, the, the kind of life that he wants us to live, but Jesus is gonna show us you don't really know what you're talking about. And so he, he starts off with this like softball example, an example that we would probably all agree on. That's like, yeah, we know what that's about. L- look at verse 21. He says, you've heard the commandment, do not murder. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. Unless you have actually killed someone, you can look at that command and think, well, okay, check, sweet, I, I'm, I'm good on that. And Jesus is gonna show us in the rest of this passage that we really don't have any clue what we're talking about. Because what he does is he does two things. He shows us, he exposes our hearts and then he exposes God's heart. He exposes our hearts and then he exposes God's heart. So let's look at these one at a time. First, how does he expose our heart? Well, if you look uh, closer at verse 22, he uses three phrases, three little clauses that together kind of function like an x-ray. Look at the very first clause in verse 22. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger. Now, he's, he's not referring to quick bursts of anger, kind of like that scene in the office when Andy punches the wall in rage, and then he has to go to anger management. That's not the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. The type of anger he's referring to is contempt. Kind of like in the office when Angela uh, had contempt toward Dwight after Dwight killed her cat Sprinkles. Just a slow simmering resentment, holding grudges. And Jesus says, okay, you may not have have ever killed anyone, but you have erased people from your life. If, If you have deleted people from your life in anger, you have functionally deleted their life. It's, 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 it's functionally the same as murdering them. And then look at the second clause. Look at verse 22, the second little phrase. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to judgment. Some of your translations may have the, uh, this Greek word raka, which is a way of uh, essentially calling someone an idiot. It's, it, Jesus is referring to the way that we use language, using our words to label people, mock people, to categorize them in such a way so that we can belittle them. And in our day and age, we, we have an arsenal of words to choose from in our word bank to belittle and mock and diminish people. We, we have words to describe you and diminish you based off of your, your political persuasion. Uh, we have racial slurs in our vocabulary. Um, we, we have words that can denigrate you based off of your sexuality. I mean, we have, we have words to can make fun of you based off of your, your income level, even your theology, on and on and on and on. And Jesus is saying, okay, you might not be assassinating someone, literally, but you're, you're assassinating their character. You are stripping down somebody that was made in God's image in the way that you use this belittling, insulting language. And then look at this third clause. He goes after our attitude, the disposition of our hearts. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's referring to the way that we dismiss people, the way that we, our hearts are poised to dismiss people. 
Um, there was this article in the Atlantic called Reflections on a Year of Outrage. It was actually talking about the year 2018, and it was making this observation that people now feel this duty to be outraged by things in the world now. And it cited this example of uh, an, an aquarium that had tweeted out a picture of an overweight otter in the aquarium, and they were kind of making some jokes about that. And there was such this storm of anger and this backlash of hostility that they had to make a public, a public apology and, and, and take the, the picture down. And the, and the article's asking this question, okay, why are we as a culture so angry about so many things? And here's what the article said. Quote, it feels good to express disgust of course. And when that comes with social affirmation, favorites, tweets, followers, blog posts, there is an incentive to show more anger. You see what they said? They said, it feels good to express disgust. I mean, doesn't it feel good to rant? Doesn't it feel good to just unload? You know why? Because it... it, it it gives you a sense of moral superiority. You see those people that are so wrong and when you blast them, it makes you feel so good because you're so right. There's a delicious feeling in ranting. And in fact, we love to watch other people rant. We, we love it when other people are angry and we, we, it catches our attention. And what Jesus is doing, if you put these three clauses together, Jesus is saying, look at, your, look at our hearts. There is something seriously sick inside of us. We are this jacked up where, where we, we, we love ripping other people apart. And so Jesus is saying, okay, stop congratulating yourselves because you're not committing murder. You are so dominated by contempt and bitterness and anger and rage that you might as well be a serial killer. Outrage culture, you know, has just become kind of mainstream culture at this point. This is just the air that we breathe. Our, our, our news sources are angry. Our entertainment is angry. Our social media feeds are angry. Our political discourse is angry. We are angry. And this being an election year, I mean, it's not going to make things uh, any better. And then you throw in a pandemic where everyone is already, already has these very charged opinions about masks and school reopening, then it's just kind of like the perfect storm. But Jesus doesn't want, before we start raging at all of the rage out there, Jesus wants us to begin in here. Jesus wants us to see ourselves. Are you willing to take an honest look at your own heart and see the contempt and bitterness and anger and rage that's in here that we all have? Are you willing, are you brave enough to do an internal audit on yourself? How do you relate to traffic? How do you relate to people at work that have slighted you? Do you keep score with people? Are you holding grudges with people? You see, Jesus is exposing our hearts, but he also exposes God's heart in this passage. And so I want to look at that with you secondly. What do I mean by the fact that he's exposing God's heart? Well, if you look at verse 23 through 26, Jesus throws out two scenarios that really get at what the command do not murder positively means. You know, in other words, when God says don't, you know, do not murder, he's not just telling us something to not do. He's also telling us something to do to love, to 
to seek life, to seek peace with one another. This command actually exposes God's heart because it's, it's, it's exposing what God's intention is for people to relate to each other. Namely, that love is to be the orienting guide on how we relate to one another. Look at verse 23. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, okay, let's just say you're at church worshiping and that you, re- and you remember there is an unresolved conflict between you and someone else. Go, leave church. He's giving you a free pass to skip church, on what grounds? To go and reconcile with your brother or your sister. He says, first go be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. You see what he's doing? He's prioritizing love and reconciliation between relationships, even over against church attendance, which is pretty shocking. But, but here's what I want. I want you to take a, a closer look because notice he did not say, if you're at church and then you realize you have something, you have some issue with somebody else, then you go. No, he said, if you're at church, if you're offering your, your gift and you remember that someone else has something against you, then you go. In fact, That's what's going on in this second little scenario in verses 25 through 26. He says, if someone is accusing you, taking you to court, stop everything that you're doing and make it a top priority to go make things right with them. Do you realize how hard this is, what Jesus is saying? He is saying, you should not just seek to remove the anger in your own heart, but you also have to seek removing the anger in your adversary's heart. That is the call to love. The call of love is not just you trying to, to, to undo the anger in your own heart, but for you to undo the anger in your adversary's heart. Jesus is calling us to a very painful, very challenging, very scary task here. Because if someone has something against you, they are upset with you, they're angry with you, they have hostility towards you. Now let's say... It, If you were to go and engage that person, and let's just say that all of their accusations against you are completely unjustified, they're completely unfounded, you have to sit there and listen to their accusations and patiently comb through the narrative to get to the truth. That takes so much patience. You're going to be getting beat up along the way. You're going to experience all of their pain, all of their anger, and it's not rooted in anything. It's going to be painful and hard. But let's just say that you go and you talk to this person and let's just say that their accusation against you is justified. It is right. Let's say that you did hurt them and let's say that you hurt them in a, maybe in a way that you were completely oblivious to. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to go and, and make yourself vulnerable to all of their pain and all of their anger and you're gonna have the humiliation of having your eyes opened and you're gonna run into the difficulty of having to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness for this person. Here's my point. Either way, whether their their accusation is justified or not, it is going to be a painful, hard, scary, challenging conversation. One that is going to require empathy from you and patience and tenderness and grace and vulnerability and openness. It's going to be really hard and painful. And Jesus says, it's worth it. 
it is better to face the pain and the difficulty of that conversation than to be content with letting that relationship get murdered. It is worth it. It is better to face the pain of that conversation than to be content with that relationship getting murdered. That's the call of love. This is God's heart for how we are to relate to one another. So here's the question. Are there people in your life that you need to go seek reconciliation with? Are there people in your family, people in this church, people in this city that you need to go seek reconciliation with? You know, there's so many people that say, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in the, the claims of Christianity, the miracles, the resurrection, the son of God stuff. But, but I like the teaching. I like the teaching of Jesus, the principles of how we are to relate to one another. Okay, that's fair enough. But here we are looking at the teaching of Jesus. We're getting right, we're getting right into the heart of the very teaching of Jesus. Do you like this? Is this making you feel good? Of course not. I mean, this is unbelievably hard stuff. C.S. Lewis once said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And, and, and Jesus is saying the same sort of thing here. It's, it's, you know, we think love and reconciliation is a great idea until we have somebody to love that has really hurt us or until we have to go seek reconciliation because it pushes us to the end of ourselves. It's so demanding. It's so painful. It's so hard. It's so scary. You say, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do this. I don't have the resources to do this. And you're right. This is why everything in the Sermon on the Mount goes back to the very first sentence. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All roads lead back to that very first sentence. Because when your heart is exposed and you see your sinfulness and you see what Jesus is calling you to do, you get to the end of yourself and you reach your utter poverty and you realize, I can't do this. I don't have the resources that it takes to do what he's asking me to do. And that is actually good news because now you're in a position to hear what is actually good news about this passage. Because Jesus doesn't just reveal, his, reveal God's heart in that way of how we are to relate to one another. He also reveals God's heart in another way. I mean, think about it like this. God is calling us to love. He is calling us to drop everything that we're doing, even worship, if someone is accusing us of something so that we can go make things right with them. We can go reconcile with them. Well, God has never called us to do anything that he hasn't first done. From the very beginning, human beings have been accusing God. In the garden, Adam and Eve accused God of withholding good things from them. Job accused God of, um, of treating him unfairly. Jonah accused God of being too merciful towards his enemies. David accused God of uh, holding out on him. And we too, we accuse God all the time of not caring, of not intervening, of not giving us the life that we think that we deserve. And what does God do with all of our accusations against him? He drops everything that he's doing and he comes after his accusers to reconcile us to himself. People like you and me, people with crazy, jacked up, murderous, contemptuous hearts. So how does he do it? How does he do it? Well, did you notice how much Jesus talked about judgment and hell 
in this passage? I mean, it's a little, it's a little uncomfortable, wasn't it? He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. I mean, that's intense stuff, but you have to see that the God of the Bible is a God of anger, a God of judgment. Now, I know that that's not, that's not PC, but it's right there in the Bible. You can't avoid it. But here's the question. What did God do with his anger? He did not put it on us. That is different from every religion in the world. He put it on himself. He poured it on his son. Jesus absorbs the full weight of God's wrath and judgment against sin in himself. And so Jesus gets assassinated. Jesus gets murdered. He experiences the pain of facing his accusers and he gets ground down to dust. Why? For you so that you would never have to taste the wrath of God for yourself, so that you would never have to be liable to the hell of fire, so that God might reconcile you to himself. That is God's heart. That is God's heart. And when you experience the very heart of God, the love of God towards you, that's what begins to melt the icy cold around our angry hearts, and it begins to warm our hearts up to even our accusers. That's what gives us the power. That's what gives us the resources because we think to ourselves, if this is how God treated me when I didn't deserve it, man, how can I continue to hold stuff over people's heads? How can I continue to distance myself from people? It, the love of God awakens love in you. Let me end with this final thought. I recently heard a story about uh, a man named Ken Parker who is a um, KKK member who turned neo-Nazi white supremacist from Florida. And he, you know, he, he did the whole thing. He wore the robes. He had the uh, swastika tattoos all over his body. He was actually one of, the, one of the men that was marching in Charlottesville a number of years ago. Dylan Roof was his, um, uh, one of his heroes who, as you know, shot and killed nine black Christians in their own church. And Parker was featured in this documentary a couple of years ago, and he was one of these talking heads that they were interviewing. And once the interview, once the documentary aired and he watched himself on the screen, he had this realization where he began to think, you know, what, what I'm saying sounds pretty dumb. What, what, what I'm doing sounds really um, wrong. And so he started to have these kind of, you know, beginning these rumblings of self-doubt, and so he began, um, that, that moment led him to have a conversation with, with a neighbor of his who was actually a pastor at a local um, black church. So they kind of started forming this friendship of sorts. And Parker and his fiance went and visited this church. And at one point he even stood up and Parker stood up in front of the church and said to everyone, you know, I'm a neo-Nazi and here are my views. And the church, um, uh, he said this, late, he said this in, a, in a subsequent interview, he said that even when he would say things like that in front of this congregation, that they would just embrace him. He said, they hugged me and said, look, we detest what you stand for, but it takes a lot of courage for someone like you to come in here and share what you have shared. And he says for him, that was the moment when everything began to change for him, where his hatred of people of color began to be destroyed by grace. When the people who he hated so deeply began showing him nothing but kindness, nothing but compassion and open arms, especially when he didn't deserve it. And so about a year after he marched in Charlottesville, Parker 
walked to the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, hand in hand with his black pastor, who baptized him in the water as a new believer in Christ. Here's this man with nothing but hatred, and it was melted away by loving kindness towards people that owed him nothing but hostility. In the same exact way, when you and I realize that we are the murderers, we are the murderers in our own hearts, and Jesus owes us nothing but hostility, and yet he he extends nothing but kindness and compassion and open arms and grace, that is what will begin to destroy the hatred and the anger and the contempt and actually replace it with love and with an instinct towards reconciliation. But you have to see Jesus giving himself for you in self-sacrificial, merciful, gracious love. Do you see it? Do you have it? Considered an invitation. Let me pray. Father, give us eyes to see Jesus dying for his enemies so that we might become the kind of people that hate our very hatred, that get angry towards our very anger, and we might become people of love people that would seek reconciliation at all costs. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.